Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Episode 5, no less, of The Rest is Politics. I'm Alistair Campbell. And I'm Rory Stewart. And Rory, last week you were in Baghdad, and today you are where? I'm, I'm, I'm in southern Rwanda. I've just flown in from Qatar, and I'm in a place called Huya in southern Rwanda, about three hours' drive from the capital. Lovely. Well, I'm actually sitting in a hotel room overlooking the Matterhorn, uh, because I'm in Switzerland for a wedding. In fact, if you could see me, Rory, I'm sitting wearing a kilt because I'm going to be playing the bagpipes at the wedding. But we don't need to talk about my bagpipes yet. We can do that later. I want to talk today about (laughs) Joe Biden and his communications. And I want to talk about Zelensky and his communications. Uh, And we've also had loads and loads and loads and loads of questions. And quite a few, I have to say, on your former colleague and desk sharer, Rishi Sunak, who I might venture has not had the best week comms wise. Well, let's let, let's get going then, Asa. And apologies to you and to anyone listening if the Rwandan connections are a, a bit strange. Um, but but I, I thought maybe a question would be a good place to start this week. So we got one from Sean, and it says, following the recent disastrous royal tour, what is the purpose of the royal family and the Commonwealth? Do they enhance our image in the world? Over to mm. you. Um, was it really that disastrous? I mean, I think it was one of those, this is Wills and Kate going around the Caribbean, and there seemed to me to have been one or two moments that were a bit tricky for them. There were a couple of images that I think they could well have done without, particularly the one where they were poking their fingers through a fence at some children. But I think it's one of those things where there is such a sort of media love-in with the Queen, against whom nothing can these days be said, Um so they just like to have a little bit more going on when when it's the what you might call the the lesser royals and i think that i also think that the thing i've learned as a kind of lifelong republican who has nonetheless had some connections and actually worked at different times with the royal family um they're very 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 good at adapting and i wondered whether when Prince William talked about will he ever actually get to be the head of the Commonwealth, will that change? I wondered if they were setting up questions that they will answer by adapting. Because the thing they do, without people really noticing, they do adapt as they go along. So despite still being at heart a Republican, I'm not sure the monarchy's on its way out yet. Well, it is, I mean, it's a, it's, it is an amazing set up, isn't it? And I, I wonder also whether there aren't very specific issues around the Caribbean, which make it particularly testing. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed, for example, in the Middle East, uh, 
there seems to be a much warmer reaction towards the royal family. And it may be that we need to separate off the question of what's happening in the many places. Obviously, most of the world, Britain has a pretty complicated history. But separate off some of those questions, the Commonwealth questions, from the broader question of the way the royal family is perceived overseas. And I think this point about changing is amazing too. I mean, I, I, it's almost unimaginable uh, what you know, a, a king or a queen 200 years ago would have thought about what the job of a king and queen is now. In fact, what do you think their job is now? If you were going to give them a job description, what do you think it is? I think their job is to be head of state, um, to show cults, a certain form of cultural, non-political leadership. And I think the Queen definitely sees part of her job as being the head of the Commonwealth, and the Commonwealth means a lot to her. Um, and interesting, I wrote a chapter about the Queen. I wrote a book called Winners a few years ago. And I found myself writing a chapter about the Queen as a kind of enduring winner. And because I got to know a lot of the royal sort of courtiers during the, particularly during after Diana died, I had sort of quite good access to their thinking. And I remember talking to one of them. He said, you have the thing you have to understand about the Queen and Prince Charles, he said, is that they completely understand that they did absolutely nothing to deserve the position that they're in. And how she sees her job is that she just is. She is the queen. <laughs> and once you understand that, and then he also explained that's how she adapts. So, for example, he said, there they are, the internet comes along, so the queen has a Facebook page. But when you look at the pictures of the queen on the Facebook page, she's riding a horse in a headscarf, or she's greeting some children who are giving her flowers, or she's doing a visit to a, a hospital or something. She is being the queen. And I think that's her job. So in a way, and I, I, I interviewed William for GQ magazine about mental health, but we ended up talking about his, how he saw his role. And he said this extraordinary thing. I said to him, listen, there's only four people on the planet who might end up doing your job, you know, all things being considered, the Queen, Prince Charles, you, and now your elder son, George. I said, do the three of you, the adults, do you ever sit down and talk about it? He said, no. We never have those conversations. <laughs> have to work it out for yourself according to the time that you're living in. Weird, isn't it? Very weird. And I think one of the contracts that seems to be between the British public and the royal family is increasingly that the royal family's not really allowed to say anything or have any views on anything seems to be part of the contract. And I wonder how that's going to work. What was your sense with Prince William and mental health in particular? Did you feel he could take provocative decisions, radical positions, or he just had to be pretty safe? No, I think on mental health, he and Harry and Kate have actually done some pretty good stuff. And I think they've pushed the boundaries a little bit. I think, look, I think Charles used, did it a lot on the environment, on architecture, on those sorts of things. I think we're so used to the Queen being absolutely kind of on the line, doesn't put a foot wrong, doesn't say anything too provocative. But I think Charles has sort of set a different tone. And I think William will set a different tone as well. So no, I think on mental health, they have, you know, look, they can't be, they can't sort of say the government is absolutely useless on mental health, uh, even though most of the people who work in mental health, I think would say that. They can't say that, but he can and does say that we have to have a different attitude to mental health. We have to take a different approach to mental health services. I mean, I've heard him say that. Um, but you're right, they can't be controversial. Um, but I actually thought that him saying, maybe I won't be head of the Commonwealth, in a funny sort of way, that was quite controversial, but in a very defensive kind of way. Yeah. 
It's so I'm actually in a, a Commonwealth country at the moment. So Rwanda, which was <laughs> is very unusual. It's it's not many of the Commonwealth countries obviously were originally part of the British Empire, and Rwanda was not. Yeah, it chose to join the Commonwealth, and it's hosting the big Commonwealth meeting, the Chogham meeting this year. So when you arrive at the airport, there's big Commonwealth signs all over the airport. And I think for President Kagame, who's been the president and has been in charge of the country since the real horrors of the genocide in the mm. in the mid nineteen nineties, where people remember, you know, an, a, a million people, literally a million people, were killed in villages and in towns. I, I'm, and it's a very strange feeling: people killed with machetes just outside this this room that I'm talking to you from. But it's interesting that amongst the many things he's done to try to rebuild the country, find out what its future is going to be. It's a landlocked country, very, very poor country. And he's done things like trying to really go hard on tourism. So trying to make as much as possible of the fact they have some of the few mountain gorillas in the world, but also trying to get into technology. I just saw a drone flying over that's taking refrigerated uh, stuff to hospitals. But amongst all that is joining the Commonwealth. So clearly at some level, uh, for a smaller country like Rwanda, maybe it's because of the size, it, it brings them into an interesting series of new relationships. So there may be a future for mm. Commonwealth and people are talking about Ukraine too. That, that's, no, and also I think that a country that has been through the, the horrors that Rwanda has, um, and by the way, there's some dispute over the million figure, isn't it? Isn't it sort of reckoned to be a little bit south of that? Uh, I know that's the official government yeah, figure. yeah. Yeah. Um, well, maybe, anyway, it's maybe it's 800,000. Yeah, but it was a, the, the, the it number was a is still, is hell of a lot of people. Yeah. And the yeah. horror, I mean, we look at the stuff that's happening in Ukraine now and we talk about horror, but I can remember when the civil war was raging in, in Rwanda and it, it genuinely was one of those situations where you just thought, why can't the world do more to stop this? And I can remember, do you remember the, the radio station? I forgot what it was called now. It had a French name. Um, but it was nickname was Machete Radio. Yeah, Mille Colline means Thousand Hills, and and it, that's where all this this cockroach stuff came. That's right, the, the radio, radio Thousand Hills. That's it. Yeah, and the and, and it was nicknamed uh, Machete Radio because basically what the presenters did was they told them where to go and who was there and who to kill with the machetes, and basically they also gave the message: if you don't kill, by the way, you're going to get killed. It's it's not a sort of you know choice. This and that sense of, I don't know, how a country comes back for that. And especially, you mentioned Kagame, you know, he was an active player on, on the, if you like, on the, the side that was, was being hit. And then for him to come back and to rebuild a country, it's an incredible thing to do. And, and actually, I don't know your sense of it being there, but they've not done that bad a job considering where they came from. Oh, it's incredible. I mean, in terms of just, if you're just looking at economic development, it's amazing. They've uh, generated nearly 8% growth a year consistently for 30 years. They've taken a lot of people out of poverty. And it is, you know, it's, it, it, there's a lot of very good things. The, the, the road system is very impressive. It's incredibly clean, but it's a very authoritarian state. He's very influenced by, mm -hmm. um, by Singapore. Mm -hmm. One Sunday, I think every month still, you're only allowed to go out on the streets if you're engaged in cleaning up litter. So everything closes. All the bars close, all the coffee shops close, all the restaurants close. And you can only be outside if you're clearing up litter. 
I wouldn't mind a bit of that in the UK, to be absolutely frank. <laughs> I mean, if you live if you live in if you live in London, you would not mind a bit of you know Sunday litter clearing. Well, there's two ways of approaching it. The, the guy I was talking to said some people just go out and party very hard on Saturday night and then spend the whole of Sunday at home so they don't have to go out and litter clear. But you're not allowed out of your house. And what what's your what's your sense of what's happening over the border in the Congo? Because of course there was a spillover into the Congo when essentially the people who were responsible for the genocide fled and the people that were the victims of it chased them down. And that led to two wars in the Congo, which I think led to another couple of million deaths. Yeah, it was one of the great unreported and most horrible wars. Um, So Congo, very, very, very worrying. Um, And it's an enormous country. I mean, you look at Democratic Republic of Congo on a map and it stretches right across Africa. It's probably the most exciting country I think I've ever visited in my life, mm. partly because of the, the variation. You go all the way from the volcanoes and the gorillas in eastern Congo, and then you get out to, to, to the west, and there's an amazing jazz scene. They're the most extraordinary, extraordinary place. I mean, the Congo River is this... It's, it's obviously in our culture because of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but it is this mesmerizing great river running through a country. There's incredible mm. fashion in Congo... But uh, as you say, the instability right throughout this region is very disturbing. Congo, Central African Republic, the Horn of Africa, of course, the Sahel. And one of the challenges is that, and this is something that we're feeling at the moment with this new Cold War that's emerging with Ukraine and Russia, is Mm. the new generation of African leaders are not necessarily stepping up to get involved in these regional issues. So if you look at Somalia at the moment, where traditionally you would have had Uganda, Kenya, Sudan, Ethiopia involved in peacekeeping and in the peace process, three out of those four have have dropped away for different reasons, mm. some of them because of civil war. And, and we, we really need to care about this. 10% of the population of the world by 2050 will be born in Nigeria. Yeah. I mean, we've mentioned it pretty much every episode we've done, but the utter folly of the abolition of the Department for International Development is just every week gets gets worse. I remember, by the way, talking to Clinton about Rwanda, and he saw it as one of, I think, his big regrets that America did not get more engaged. And, he, and I remember him saying he, he, he doesn't know whether he, they could have made a, much of a difference, but he feels very, very regretful that they didn't really even try and i think that the, yeah. the 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 overhang there you mentioned somalia i think it was because it had such a sort of detrimental impact on the american psyche to have those americans remember the americans who were sort of dragged through the streets of mogadishu yeah the black um, hawk down yeah 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 and that sort of just you know and 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 i think we're the other thing i want to talk to you about rwanda well, two questions, really. The first is, I haven't asked you yet what you're doing there. And the second is, which I think has a little bit of a uh, reaches over to Ukraine as well. I, the other thing I remember being briefed about in, on, in relation to Rwanda was the use of rape and sexual violence as a weapon of war. And I think this was true. I mean, I think it, we've got to be very uh, thoughtful about this because I think it was true for a long time in European war. Mm. And um, I think it's very important to just understand that this is nothing specific to Rwanda or Africa mm. that that humans can be unbelievably brutal to each other. Mm. And then when it passes, you can barely acknowledge it. I mean, I think you 
feel it. You go to Cambodia, where obviously in the killing fields, a lot of people were killed. Um, Germany, where, of course, a lot of people were killed. Uh, Rwanda, where a lot of people were killed. And, of course, what you see is incredibly kind, polite, generous people mm. living decent, normal lives. Um, and it's so difficult reconciling these moments that happen to a country. Um, and and I think, again, you know, this is what Russia and Ukraine is a sort of reminder of, that we can so easily get into the mindset of thinking these things are past and are never going to happen again. And they yeah. reappear, which is why people were so horrified in the Balkans. I mean, of course, if you were, you know, an educated person living in Belgrade or Sarajevo, you would never have imagined for a moment that you were going to be able to suddenly find yourself in a world in which ex-gym instructors and karate trainers and poets were literally executing thousands mm -hmm. of people. Um, what am I doing in Rwanda? Um, <laughs> I am uh, in Rwanda because I'm working with a charity called Give Directly. And Give Directly is a really radical idea. They are essentially are giving $1,000 of cash to very, very poor families and trusting them to spend the money well. And as you can imagine, you tell people this and people's jaws drop. They're like, how do you know they're not going to spend it on alcohol? How do you know they're not going to be cheated out of it? But they are incredibly rigorous. They do these amazing tests where they will study very carefully the impact in 100 villages. And then they will compare it to the impact of much better known charities who are going in doing training programs or doing health programs or education programs. And the truth is... Time and time again, and there have been 230 studies of this, giving people cash is probably the most effective single intervention that you can do for a very poor family. Because the truth is, in almost every case, they know how to spend the money much better than a foreigner mm. does. And there's an element of dignity here. Are you just going around giving people money then? Are you just, are you just going around uh, Rwanda giving people money? That, that is exactly right. And then seeing <laughs> what happened with the programs over the last two years. And it's incredible. People are, you suddenly see transformation in their children's health, stunting, nutrition, roofs going up on houses, people investing in goats and livestock to create an income. It's really incredible. And it's such a reminder because, of course, you're talking about people here in Rwanda who are living on a dollar a day. So they'll be yeah. earning $300 in a year. If you give a family yeah. like that $1,000, that would be like giving somebody in Britain three times their annual income. But what is yeah. so striking, because this, this is like discussions about social welfare in Britain, where people say, if you give poor people money, they're going to misuse it, or they're going to spend it on drink or spend it on drugs, is that in almost every case, people are spending it responsibly, and their lives are being transformed. And the great thing is, mm. all the money's going directly to them. It's not going to foreigners driving around in fancy white land cruisers with their kids in fancy accommodation. It's hitting the ground, and it's... Um, it's, it's about dignity. So I'm, mm. I'm really excited by it. And I've become a real apostle for cash transfer. Are you a, um, does, has that made you a supporter of universal basic income? Well, this is sort of what it is. And I, I'm increasingly interested in that. You're absolutely right. This is a UBI model. And I think it's almost more effective in, uh, with very poor families in the developing world than maybe it is elsewhere. I know they did studies in Norway where they concluded that if you took summer off welfare and put them on UBI, it didn't seem to make much difference to their lives. Mm. But my goodness, the transformation, if you're giving it to people who are living on a dollar a day, yeah. is unbelievable. So yes, I, I think there's a huge argument for universal basic income in the developing world. Also, this thing about um, 
if you give people money, you don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, I, I actually had somebody at the tube stop me the other day because I was there was this guy um, begging on the tube, and he was sort of he, he was he was kind of playing music, but not really. It was he, he wasn't really a busker. He was just sort of tapping a few things together. So I walked by and I dropped a fiver into his hat, and a woman was behind me on the escalator, and she said. She said, excuse me, I saw that. Um, how do you know he's not just going to spend it on drugs? And I said, well, he might. But <laughs> he might not. <laughs> it's like, it's not really up to me. And I, I, I think that, you know, I think if we do give people a sense that they sort of, on balance, most of them, as you say, can be trusted, I think that's a better way to come at it from thinking, well, I can't give anybody any money because, you know, I don't know what they're going to do with it. And, and Alistair, if you think about it, if you had a friend who was in real financial trouble, your instinct probably would be to give them cash um, rather than try to guess what's good for them. The problem with a lot of development agencies is that they, let's say there's been a flood or there's been an earthquake, they go in and they say, well, what you need is a bag of wheat or what you mm. need is a tent or what you need is medical supplies. But actually, generally, if you give people cash they can decide what they need, whether they want a tent, whether they're, what they need today is food. And, and I think, you know, if we just extend our instincts on what you would want if you were in a very bad position, um, it would generally be cash. And I think we should, we should be confident about that. What do you think about UBI, Alistair, before I move you on to Biden and Zelensky? Um, I, well, I'm surprised that you're in favour of it. Uh... I, I I am broadly in favour of it, but I keep being told by Tony Blair that it's not a very good idea. Um, and until I sit down and pick his brains as to why it's not a good idea, I've been told by Ed Miliband that it's an absolutely fantastic idea. Um, <laughs> so, now, I know that Tony Blair won three elections and et cetera, and Ed Miliband didn't. But I, do, I, I, I definitely think that where the world is going at the moment, and I hope where Britain is going as well, is an understanding that the systemic inequalities that appear to be getting worse, not better, um, have got to be addressed. And whether UBI is part of the panoply of that, I think, listen, put it this way, this is a classic cop-out answer. I wish there was a deeper debate going on about it. Um, most people, when you say UBI, probably think either of UBS the bank or UB40 the band. It's not really in the public debate yet, is it? Yeah, it's sort of geeky. Well, we're going to have to come back. We're going to pin you down on what Blair's argument. No, no, we should, we was. should, we should do. We should definitely. We should at a later stage. We should do a whole thing about it because I do think it's a very, very interesting idea, and I'm very interested that you're in favour of it. Um, tell us, tell us. We've heard a lot about Zelensky's communication genius. Can you give us a sense of what you think about Biden? He made a big speech in Poland. This was his his grand speech on on Russia and Ukraine, and I thought watching it. I don't know whether you saw it, but there were some very, very strong bits at the beginning of the speech where I thought for once he really sounded confident. He'd found mm. a really good way of connecting to his own faith, to Poland through, through John Paul II, the Pope, mm. to the Solidarity Movement and linking this all into a bigger narrative. But what, what do you make about Biden as a communicator? Well, do you know, it was interesting. I was actually, it was the, it was the day before Fiona and I were leaving for, for here in Switzerland. And so I popped round to see Neil Kinnock because it was his... 80th birthday can you believe um the day after we left so i popped round to give him uh a couple of books as a present one was about navalny and the other one was about churchill's views on europe and as it happened uh i was there we i was there when biden was speaking 
So Neil and I watched it together. And of course, Neil has a very close connection to Biden. Do you remember the famous speech? Why am I the first Kinnock in a thousand generations? And then Biden popped up saying, why am I the first Biden in a thousand generations? That's right. That's right. And, and, they, and they, became, they became very friendly as a result of that. And we were both having the same impression that this was a really, really, really powerful speech. And what's more, that it was one of those speeches where you felt that this really could be one of those that goes down in history. It, as you say, he really found his voice. Um, it, it, it was very, very well delivered. And then he had this bloody throwaway line at the end, uh, which does genuinely seem to have been a throwaway line, not in the script where he said, you know, uh, Putin can't stay in power. Now, I, don't, I think the, hyster the hysterical reaction in some parts, I think is overdone and plays Putin's game for him. So we should sort of calm down about that. But at the same time, it was, it was, it was annoying. The minute he said it, I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's the line. That's the story. And then I went and checked it against the actual script that the White House had released, and it wasn't there. And I thought they've gone to all that trouble to, to put together a really significant, incredibly powerful speech. And then, as we've seen in the last two or three days, the only thing that people have really taken out of it was what he said about Putin and was it regime change and then the White House walked it back and Blinken walked it back and then Biden has said no it wasn't walked back that he was just reflecting his rage at what was going on so it was unfortunate because I agree with you I thought it was a terrific speech and and Biden is strange isn't it because he's been doing this for 40 years hasn't he he loves these off-the-cuff things he loves ripping off his speeches mm. he and somehow despite it all he's been an incredibly successful politician or possibly because of it, because I think people, I think one of the things that people like about Biden, those who do like him, and I like him a lot, I think one of the things people like about him is that the, he is the sort of classic, you know, very smart, white-toothed, smart-suited, professional politician, great at the handshakes, all that stuff. But there's a kind of humanity and an authenticity in there as well. And I think that was, I mean, it was a throwaway remark, wasn't it? You know, he was basically saying, for Christ's sake, this guy cannot be allowed to hang around any longer. That's what he was saying. And he was speaking, I think, to a, what he really feels and also what he thinks a lot of the people, that certainly the people that were watching there in Poland would have felt. Now, he is nonetheless the most powerful elected leader in the world. We can have a debate about whether that's true, but that's the cliche. And at a moment like that, probably shouldn't have been making throwaway remarks. But I still think it, um, you know, the, 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 the big, the, the, big the, the creator of this disaster is Putin, not Biden. And I think the media need to calm down a little bit. It wasn't that big a deal. It's just that I wish he hadn't said it. So one of my American friends who's a, 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 an ex-senator said that one of the challenges has been making the transition from being a senator. So apparently American senators the whole style is making outrageous, unscripted remarks a great deal. And it's just difficult for them to make the transition from that into executive mm. office where suddenly you're responsible for things. It's a bit different, I think, to the House of Commons where the relationship between being a member of parliament and a minister is much closer because so many of the ministers come out of the House of Commons. Mm. But I think there's much more latitude for senators to go out and make big statements and not have to be accountable for them in the same way. Yeah, I think once you're the president, and and also you know, don't forget we used, we've we've had four years of Trump saying anything that came into his head, um, and and Biden. I think one of the reasons why a lot of people saw Biden as a breath of fresh air is he thought you were back to kind of professional, serious, sensible, grown-up politics, which I think we are. I think we are. I mean, can you imagine what 
the debate in NATO would be like at the moment if Trump was still president. I mean, it would be terrifying what was going on. Absolutely yeah. terrifying. Yeah. So I think we should still count our blessings that, that Joe's there. And I think you mentioned um, Zelensky. It's interesting, this last few days, I've had so many calls from... Well, it's, I guess it was because it started with Bloomberg and Reuters, and they, of course, get seen by all the media. Um, but getting calls about what I thought of, of Zelensky's communications. And do you know what I, th I think is really interesting? I don't, think he, I don't think he would have done all these Zoom speeches to all the national assemblies around the world pre-COVID. I think it's a consequence of COVID, this, that parliaments think it's okay. Can you imagine the British Parliament when you were there? If they, oh, we can't possibly have a foreign leader addressing us by Zoom. Yeah, you know the, the, all the all the sort of suits that have got very very upset at the idea wouldn't be taking Parliament seriously. But now, of course, he's got this ability to sit at a laptop and tailor these speeches to very very specific audiences, and he's done them pretty well, I have to say. And and I, I guess um, although probably people are going to be cursing me because of the dodgy internet connection, it's probably true that you and I wouldn't have been able to do a podcast so comfortably with me in Rwanda, you in Switzerland, um, before the days of Zoom. Um, should we should we move for a, a break now, Alistair? And as we come back from the break, I'd, I'd, I'd love to bring you into some of the new questions we just got. Mm -hmm. Fine, let's do that. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick... Too. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Alistair, we seem to be getting completely inundated with questions, and they're, they're getting more and more interesting. I mean, they're stretching all over the world, but I think we've got about 100 of them to get through. Um, we'll try to get through as many as possible. I, 
I want to start with Olivia from Twitter. This, uh, she said, Alistair, would you vote for Rory as PM? I beg your pardon? <laughs> um, I'd vote for Rory Campbell, my son, as PM. Uh, I think he'd be very good, but he's not an MP and he's not, he's not in Parliament. I might have voted for you had I been a Tory MP with a vote in the leadership election. But I'm not going to vote for you as Prime Minister if you're still a Tory. So unless you're telling me that, unless Olivia knows that, Rory, you're going to join the Labour Party and one day maybe become Labour leader, no, I'm not going to vote for you as Prime Minister. And Alison, can I, can I pull you in on something which I, I've been fascinated by? Um, you're very, very good at teasing me at uh, grumbling about my colleagues. So I've, <laughs> I think I've had a go at Alan Duncan. I've had a go at George Osborne. I had a go at Rishi Sunak. Um, but whenever I try to tempt you backwards to, to make cheeky comments about Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or anyone, um, I'm slightly struggling. Is that because, do you think at some level, even though I think you're not a member of the Labour Party anymore, but do you think there is some sort of really deep, deep tribal loyalty going back to your childhood here, which makes it very difficult for you to, 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 to criticise? Yeah, I, look, I am a very tribal person. Um, I'm, I'm sitting here wearing my kilt because I'm going to go and play the bagpipes at this wedding that I'm at. Um, and I feel very, very tribally Campbell. I feel very tribally Burnley football. I feel very tribally Scotland football and all other sports. And, you know, to be honest, uh, I, somebody was having a little bit of a pop at you in a restaurant the other day. I was saying, yeah, I'm quite enjoying your podcast, but I'm not sure about that, Rory Stewart. And I find myself defending you, Rory, because I'm, I'm now very tribally podcast, you see. <laughs> so I'd be, I, I'm, I'm very loyal in that way. Um, and yeah, I guess my Labour tribalism, despite being expelled for the party, runs incredibly deep. I guess it does. Yeah, it doesn't mean I don't criticise them. Um, was this something that came from your father? Were your were your parents very strong Labour? No, not really. No, um, my, Fiona's parents, my, my my partner's parents, they 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 were a very very Labour family. Uh, but no, my parents were. They voted everything at different times, um, and it wasn't that particular particular household. Funny if I mentioned Neil Kinnock earlier. I think I think getting into politics via journalism at a time when I got very friendly with Neil, I think that definitely sort of fueled my tribalism. Um, but look, I can I, I I think it's a fair point that I that I probably hold back a little bit. But you know, for example, I'm very 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 pissed off at the way that the Labour Party has got this kind of a murder on Brexit. Doesn't want to call out how badly it's going, even though it's going terribly. I was listening to um, on the on the drive down through France. We were listening to a book called Butler to the World by a guy, guy called Oliver Buller. But how do you spell? How do you pronounce B U double L O U G S? Anyway. That's his name. It sounded like a Bullo, sort of... Bullo. Bullo. Bullo, Bullo. right. Bullo. Yeah, Isn't that yeah, a sport that you yeah. lot played at Eton? Bullo. <laughs> or was that Brillo? And, and that was Bullingdon, Buller. Um, but the thing is that in that book, which is an extraordinary book, by the way, it's about how Britain has basically sold itself as the butler to the world, and hence we have all these oligarchs here, and hence all the corruption. It's a, it's a terrifyingly... Uh, good book, but he wrote a lot about the uh, the Labour government and gambling, our, our liberalisation of the of the gambling laws. And I, I I was and remain of the view that that was a bad thing to do. I don't think we should have done that. 
and I criticised it when I, when we were doing it, and I criticise it now. Likewise, I'm not that big a fan of the of the 24 hour licensing that we brought in. So I, there are things that I will criticise. I, I regularly, every time I see Ed Miliband, I criticise him for the fact that he didn't <laughs> defend the Labour record. And I'm and I am, as I say, although I want Keir Starmer to win. I there's lots of things I will say about the way that they're, they're they're approaching the campaign against Johnson. I think they've been far too soft on COVID. I think they've been far too soft on Brexit. Um, and 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 I want them to be you know bigger, bolder, louder, more radical. How's that? But but, but that's very good. I think I'm very pleased to see that. But but it does seem just just to push one more time that you're very um that those are quite policy oriented. And one of the things that. I think is striking in the diaries and talking to you is when you think about Gordon Brown or, or Peter Mandelson, who, who incidentally I just saw in Qatar, I just saw Peter Mandelson and Jonathan Powell in, in Qatar just, just now mm. on Sunday, both of whom made the same comment about you, about how, how loyal you are. I get the sense that you like playing the man, not the ball when it comes to Tory MPs, but when it comes to Labour, you very much play the ball, not the man. So you're, You'll have a good go at Boris Johnson being a sociopath, I think was your, your take this time. But whatever your private reservations might be about Gordon Brown, we, we don't get much of a sense of his tics, his mannerisms, his personality. Is that fair? I think you do in the diaries. Um, no, listen, I, 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 I don't think I do. Look, I do play the man, um, but I play, a man, I play the man as a way of playing the ball. I mean, you're on record, not least on this podcast, as saying you think Johnson is a terrible human being doing a terrible job as prime minister. <laughs> that is why he has to be, you know, that's why it is partly about him and his personality. But I, but I will always take it to the policy. You know, it is partly... Would you ever, for example, sorry, I'm, I'm, this is mean to you, but would you ever, for example, contemplate the possibility that Keir Starmer can be a little bit boring? Uh, I could... Um, but <laughs> I wouldn't. But what I'd say is that what I, <laughs> maybe this is the spin doctor in me now. I'd say, do you know what? I think the world is. Re- I think Britain is ready for a serious, stable, Merkel Schultz type <laughs> leader, rather than the sort of you know, idiotically plaything Johnson type thing. Yeah, I kind of. I think he. Uh, people say about Keir that he lacks charisma. Um, I don't. You see, the thing is, when I talk to Keir, I don't find him boring. I think he's quite interesting. Um, but I think he's a little bit. I'm, uh, there's another question that came through about politicians who aren't always as they appear when 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 they're trying to get their message across. Which but here it is Mark Dealey, Twitter. Which politician had the potential to be remembered as great but had difficulty getting the message across? I often think of Gordon like that. I remember my mum once saying that Gordon was a was would would have been a, the best possible politician to have in the radio era because he sometimes looked uncomfortable on television. Now I think I think Gordon does did and does have an element of greatness about him, but he struggled with some of the kind of modern parts of politics, and maybe Keir's a little bit a, a little bit like that as well. It's very weird. I mean, you always get the sense in British politics. I think we talked about this before that we lurch from one to the other. You go from the sort of glossy Tony Blair to the slightly grim Gordon Brown. You go from the glossy David Cameron to the slightly more sort of earnest, understated, introverted Theresa May, then to the other extreme with Boris Johnson, and then potentially on to Keir Starmer. It's as though... So who follows Johnson? So who follows Johnson? Well, that would suggest the next one's going to be a slightly boring introvert, isn't it? 
if ben that's Wallace. the way British politics works. <laughs> who could it be? Who could it be? <laughs> I, I don't know, actually. I certainly accuse my colleagues of being boring introverts. But the, actually, often the people that impressed me most around the cabinet table were people that it was difficult to sell to the public. So the person I thought was the by far the best politician I ever dealt with was David Gork. I thought he was extraordinary. Thought he was wise. He was funny. He's really come out. I mean, you can see now when his his, his writing and his stuff on Twitter, mm. how funny and observant he can be. But as a Secretary of State, he was incredible. He was the only person who genuinely listened to civil servants, could genuinely make a decision quickly. But selling him to colleagues during the leadership race, I started by trying to say, we've got to have this guy as prime minister. Um, was mm. difficult because somehow the conventions of British politics are looking for something else, and I can't yeah. quite work out what that is. I think I do think it is this the, the this kind of interact inter interaction between our political culture and our media culture, uh, and I think we have probably suffered from it more than any other country. I mean, I've just been reading the German newspapers this morning, and there's there's Schultz. Um, I mean, he's really not the most charismatic character, nor was Angela Merkel. But Schultz is just, you know, the, his, the, the Social Democrats have just won this massive election in Saarland. Uh, I mean, huge. And that is partly, I think, a reflection of people thinking, actually, you know, maybe we're the country we picked the right guy. And he's not charismatic. Um, I, I wish we could get away from it. And I speak as somebody who, you know, helped Tony Blair to project himself as a figure of charisma and as somebody who had this sort of amazing ability to communicate and so forth. But I really do think one of the problems right across the world is that our politicians aren't serious enough. They're just not serious. And that's a, it's just, it's horrific. I mean, the, the fact that the Tory party hasn't got a place for you, David Gork, Ken Clark, um, Dominic Grieve, Anna Subri, it's ridiculous when you think about it, but that's because they've got now the Boris Johnson culture is what drives the Conservative Party and is what drives a lot of our media. Grim. And so that brings us to a question from Lindsay on Twitter. She says, can you enlighten us about politicians' relationships with journalists? I'm baffled by leaks, sources, how the news agenda is influenced. So, I mean, th this is quite a technical question, but I was struck during the Gavin Williamson knighthood thing that there was a big article in The Times saying, uh, number 10 says that they didn't really want to give the knighthood to Gavin Williamson uh, and were embarrassed that it had happened and weren't sure it was justified. What happens when we read in the newspaper something saying number 10 says? What's really behind that? How official is that? How seriously are you supposed to take that? It's very, very hard for me to answer that. I mean, look, there are journalists right across the spectrum who make up stories and make up quotes. And people may be shocked by that. I don't know whether they're shot by that or not, but they shouldn't be when they know about the media culture that we saw in the, you know, in the Leveson inquiry and the phone hacking and so forth. But there are a lot of, you know this because you've had stories about you. When, when you're in the papers and you know something to be completely untrue, right, then there's a little part of your mind that thinks, hmm, they must have just made it up because they wanted it to be true or somebody said it to them. And they didn't really want to check it because if they checked it and found it wasn't true, then they'd feel less able to, to run it. And I think, look, my golden rule is generally, if you see an anonymous quote, dismiss it. Not always, but generally. I can remember once we gave out prizes. The media hated me for this, but it was after a reshuffle. And we'd done the cabinet and I gave out prizes for the people in the press who'd given the most different jobs to different cabinet ministers, <laughs> one of whom, George Robertson, ended up staying where, they, where he started. 
and I think he'd been given 11 different posts in the, in the predictions of what the reshuffle was going to hold. And I think you can get some. Look, I mean, I, that Williamson thing, I think, was a case of number 10 having their cake and eating it. John, we talked about this before. Johnson gave him the knighthood, but they don't want the public to think they really want him. So just maybe that was true. I think at the moment you're seeing a lot of stuff between number 10 and number 11 with Sunak. Um, some of it will be true. Some of it will be somebody inside number 10, with or without the authority of the prime minister or his communications guy, I don't know saying something to a journalist and the journalist wanting to write a story based and upon it. To just quickly that on that, how often when you see these things, presumably some of the time it is with the authorisation of the minister or the prime minister or the communications person that some of these apparent leaks and sources are quite deliberate. And that's why you end up with very bad relationships to number 10 and number 11, because understandably the prime minister suspects the chancellor's actually leaking on him and vice versa. And I think there was a bit of that, wasn't there, with the relationship between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and, uh, but all I'd say is that if you, if you, if you look at the, the thing that's going on between Johnson and Sunak at the moment, for example, um, I suspect that, for example, when Sunak has done interviews and said, well, I wouldn't have used those words like he did in the way that he does, number t- now that's on the record. He's on television yeah, saying that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he, so... Is, is that better or worse than reading something that says, you know, Sunak thinks Johnson's a bit of a buffoon or Johnson thinks Sunak's too ambitious or whatever? I think what happens is that people chat to each other. And, you know, in answer, in answer to Lindsay's question about the political relationship with journalists, the fact is you're sort of swimming in the same bowls the whole time. You know, journalists can hang around the commons. They can nab politicians as they go to the vote. They can phone. And now, of course, with WhatsApp and texting and so forth, journalists, you know, they can just text somebody in number 10. Now, what I try, one of the reasons I write, try to run a very tight ship in number 10 is I wanted, if, if somebody read number 10 or the prime minister, a source close to, I put all my briefings on the record because I wanted them to be able to differentiate between the prime minister's spokesman said and a number 10 source. And I actually wanted to be in a position, particularly at briefings, to say, look, if you see number 10 source, I'm sorry, unless it's me, unless it's Tony Blair, then I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to engage with you. Because, and that, that, I think, is the right way to go about trying to communicate from the centre. But you're never, ever, ever, ever going to stop private conversations. And you're never going to stop journalists elevating them into something that they want their reader or listener to think is incredibly important. You never hear anybody say, I was talking to a, a very minor official who wasn't very close to the Prime Minister. Well, there are plenty of those in, in number 10, right? <laughs> but they will always be a very senior aide, very close to the Prime Minister. So, so just, just one more time, Lindsay, I think, is pushing at this question of leaks and how the news agenda is influenced and shaped. Um, can you give us any concrete examples, maybe not from your own life, but something that you've seen somewhere so people can actually understand how that might work? Because they kind of see it a bit on television, but w- what's actually going on there? You want to get a well, story out, but you don't want to take credit for it. Can you give us give, put some flesh on the bones? Um. Well, if you if you think of the the pandemic during the pandemic, yeah. um, the it was obvious that Johnson didn't particularly want to go into a lockdown, and I think that there was a little bit of kind of you know um, preparing the wicket is to use a sort of sporty analogy that they start to 
just a brief that, you know, the likelihood is that we may have to. We are now looking at these different options. And in a sense, you're, you're, you're shaping opinion. You're basically getting the media uh, to, to, to test, I guess. You're putting, the, you're putting the possibilities out there. And then you're seeing how parliamentarians react. You're seeing how the media react. You're seeing how the public react. And Alistair, can you do that? Is that sometimes done quite deliberately? So might a communications director actually sit down with a grid and say, OK, why don't we try to float this for two or three days? And then on day four, we could do this. And day- is, it as, is it as systematic as that? No, I think, I, well, certainly when I was doing the job, the grid was very much events. It was events that were happening. So it was the launch of a white paper. It was a speech by the prime minister. It was a spring statement by the chancellor. That was the way that we organised the grid. But certainly I think you'd find situations. And, and, and listen, even from the time I was doing it, the world has changed so much in terms of how the media now is. Um, I mean, there's no such thing as a deadline. There's social media. There's more TV channels than ever. And but I still think that on this, I think L- L- Lindsay. If I were Lindsay, I wouldn't get too hung up on the mechanics of this. And it's usually best to go and look at what is being said on the record. You f- I find you're going to learn more from that than you are from sort of worrying about who said what to whom and where and where that headline came from. Very good. Okay. Well, over to you. Was there a question that appealed to you? Uh, there was one here from um, now. Who says it's from Keith? And it talks. And it, we're on to Rishi Sunak here. He urged firms to stop investing in Russia, and he welcomed commitments by firms to reduce or sell their holdings there. And when he was asked if he was giving advice to others that you're not following in your own home, and this is about his wife, who is a, apparently richer than the Queen, and is Infos- who, who is connected with Infosys, which is a massive company in Russia and still investing in Russia. He said, I'm an elected politician. I'm here to talk to you about what I'm responsible for. My wife is not. Now, I'm not sure about that. And I have to say, Rory, if that was a Labour minister, a Labour chancellor, if that had been Gordon Brown and his wife, Sarah, was involved in something like that, or if it was a French or German finance minister, I think our papers would be going absolutely berserk about it. Don't you? Well, I I don't know. I mean, the story is a complicated one, isn't it? So... As I understand it, maybe maybe I'm missing a bit of this, but my, my understanding of it is that she, Rishi Sunak, has married the daughter of the founder of Infosys. So their family own this enormous stake. As you say, she's very wealthy. So they own an enormous number of shares in Infosys. And so she owns some hundreds of millions of pounds of worth of shares in her father's company. And her father's company is a big investor in Russia. So I guess the question is, what is it that people are asking? Is it that they're asking that she put pressure on her father to leave Russia? Is it that they're asking her to sell the shares in her father's company unless he pulls out of Russia? What's what's your sense of what, 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 what you think a reasonable thing for Rishi and his wife to be doing in this situation would be? I think in this particular situation where the government is making such a big thing about putting sanctions on... Russia and on essentially boycotting the Russian economy and talking about everybody doing their bit to damage the Russian economy. That is essentially what they're saying because, you know, we're not having a no-fly zone, etc., etc. I think what they're saying is that you, Rishi Sunak, should be able to stand there and say that you, Rishi Sunak, are not benefiting in any way financially from the the current workings of the Russian economy. And therefore, does that not mean that sometimes it may be tough on you and your family, but sometimes you actually have to make very, very difficult decisions concerning your family because you are a elected politician. And I'm not sure that sort of separation works in these circumstances because of the 
because of the politics. And that may seem very, very harsh. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, also, because it also brings you to the question of what's the relationship between a politician and their partner? So what, what happens if your wife turns around and says, well, screw you. Um, mm. Thank you very much. This is an Indian, Indian company. This is my father's company. I believe in my father. I'm investing in it. I'm sorry, I, I got shares in it and I'm supporting my father and I'll have a private conversation with him if I like, but mm. it's none of your business. I'm married to you and I'm not a politician. Okay, but in those circumstances, I think if Rishi Sunak, and the interview that it was on Sky News, it was a brilliant inter- interview by um, is it Jane Secker, and she did a very good interview of Sunak, very low-key, very gentle. Um, but if that had been anybody else, if, if, if she'd have said, uh, Chancellor, we've got this company here that's doing this in Russia, what do you think about that? He would say that's a very bad thing. So actually, it's another case of having your cake and eating it here. He's actually yeah. saying, because she's my wife she should be entitled, I should be entitled not to have to criticise her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah, I think yeah, that, yeah, is, yeah. that is yeah. tricky. So, so maybe, yeah, yeah. So maybe an option would have been to say, actually, personally, I really do think that emphasis should not be investing in Russia, but my wife disagrees yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, or, yeah. or uh, you know, or he, he could be honest enough to say, look, when you're in the position that I'm in, sometimes it does mean, I'm afraid, you have very difficult conversations with your family as well. And she's an individual. She's entitled to do, you know, exactly what she wants within the law anywhere in the world. Um, you know, she happens to be, be my wife. But I want every single company in the world to have an understanding of its role in trying to bring this ghastly situation in Ukraine to an end. You know, I think there are ways of doing it without getting very, very sniffy and very thin skinned and very sort of churlish, which I think he did. Um, to finish, Joe from Twitter, he says... <laughs> This presumably you get asked all the time, but it's been thrown in here. So we'll, 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 I'm going to throw it at you anytime. So you get it out of the way. You don't have to do it on the next podcast. <laughs> Did you watch Thick of It? And is it in any way realistic compared to real life and politics? And then it's the cheeky final question. Are there any real Malcolm Tuckers out there? Well, how do you know that was for me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you watch The Thick of It? I, I do, I do, I do, I do. And, uh, you know, many of the, amongst the many reasons I'm intimidated about doing a programme with you is because I've watched the thick of it. <laughs> um, look, Rory, the thick of it is a, a satire and it's an account of a moderately psychotic Scottish spin doctor who's in Downey Street trying to control the politicians and the media. Now, why yeah. would I not like that? <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know. We, 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 we had a, I think we had the first swear word on this podcast came from you. And the, the powers that be will have to cut this out if they think I, it contains too many swear words. But I once bumped into Peter Capaldi, who plays Malcolm Tucker, the yep. legendary yep. down the yep. street Scottish yep. spin doctor. Yep. Yep. And we were doing this, we ended up doing a charity swear off. <laughs> and we had to get as many swear words as we could into, I think it was 90 seconds or something that we had. And I, t- I went first and I told this story about my f- uncle who was a farmer and he was trying to work a milking machine and the milking machine wouldn't work. And he ended up saying, fuck it, the fucking fuckers fucking fucked and I'm fucking fucked off with it. Right. Now, I thought that was quite a good little sort of... And Peter Capaldi, who is an actor, he has people to write his scripts for him, etc. He looked a little bit worried as he came up to, to the podium. Somebody came up, rushed up to the microphone, 
stopped Peter Capaldi getting to the microphone and announced uh, an apology because what I hadn't realised was the whole thing was beamed round the entire building, including into the crash. Oh, no! <laughs> And I thought, that is a, that, that is, so when you say, is it in any way realistic compared to real life in politics, that I felt was a bit of a sort of uh, a thick of it moment. I thought the thick of it was brilliant, by the way. Just, just while you're here, um, you're about to go and play the pipes. I I also used to play the pipes. I know. Um, Tell me, what, what do you, do you practice a lot? Do your neighbours put up with you practicing? You're practicing on Chantal Pipes and what, what are you going to play? Well, I'm here in Switzerland um, and honestly, I do wish British people could sort of think there are enough wedding venues in Britain, but I'm allowing this one. I'll tell you the story. It's, it's a very, it's quite a moving story, actually. My best friend when I was a journalist at the Daily Mirror was a guy called John Merritt, and he died in 1992 of leukemia in his 30s. And uh, his, his wife, Lindsay, at the time was pregnant. Um, a few years later, his child, Ellie, also died of leukemia, aged eight or nine. The child who was Lindsay, his wife, was pregnant with when John died is called Hope, and she's the one who's getting married today. Oh, how so I have written a tune, which I will play uh, this evening. So yeah, I, funny enough, since my... I read in one of your books that you'd learnt the chanter at school. I got the feeling you didn't really love it like I do. I'm not good enough, I think, is the problem. I, 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 I'm, I just don't feel that I'm good enough. It is a hard instrument to play. But since my dad died and since my brother died, they were both, my brother especially, was a really, really good piper. And since they both died, it's, it's interesting. You say to I practice, I probably play three or four times a week now. And I write tunes, and I I, I love the I love playing the bagpipes, and um, I think it's that connection. It's getting back it's back to tribalism, I'm afraid, Rory. And and I do love the fact that the bagpipe. When I was a student, I was a busker with the bagpipes, and honestly, it's the best busking instrument because you drown out all the others. <laughs> and what's more, people don't really want to play for that long. A couple of minutes does it for most people. <laughs> and and on the neighbours, the neighbours love it. Uh, so we we'll, let, let's let's try to get a little little bit of one of your compositions on one of these podcasts. I'd love to hear you composing pipe music. That's something I didn't realise you did at all, and that's uh, uh, listen. Really I, I, I've got them right here. By I can play you something now if you want, Roy. If you're up for it, and um, be amazing to hear what you've composed. And I'll try to turn the volume up so people in Rwanda can hear. But um, <laughs> it's going to take a second to get your <laughs> well, listen, get your Rory, pipes my, going, and let's hear the tune. Well, Roy, as my neighbours will. Uh, testify you never have to ask me twice to play the bagpipe so i'm very happy to do that and by the way this time next week i'll be in le Côte, la cote d'ivoire so we'll i shall be in africa as well next week and i'll be taking my bagpipes with me there as well brilliant to explain the tune it's a kind of it's a hybrid because i'm going to play the first part is about the sadness of her dad not being there and that's a kind of lament and then I'm going to go into a bit that's the, the happiness of her now having her own family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, it's got that mix. And it, the, the full thing is going to be about 10 minutes. I'm just going to give you little highlights. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone, very much for listening. See you next week. And Alistair, take it away.
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.